As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. You know, here we are working at the commentary mines, chipping away at the walls of analysis to try to tra extract the nuggets of wisdom that we can, panhandling through the opinion waterways. Sadly, not really being able to extract any metaphors of quality. I just wanted to comment, though, that thankless though this work may often be, I get tremendous joy from people sending us messages saying, based on a thing you said, I decided to try this game, and it has brought me joy. And that, in turn, brings me, as a commenter, tremendous quantities of joy. Note that I said a thing you said about a game, not even necessarily praise. The, a particular subset of this is, you slammed a game in a particular way, but your analysis made it clear to me that I would like it. Just and so. I went and I tried it, and I liked it. I, I got a couple messages this week from people who said, I tried this game based on something you said, and we really, really loved it. That just makes me so deeply happy. That's why we're here. It is why we're here, because we may sound like curmudgeons, and by we, I mean me. I may sound like a curmudgeon, and very often I am, but I do actually think that spreading joy through the hobby is a good thing. It's just not a thing I'm usually very good at. So on the rare times when I've managed to perhaps accidentally do that, it brings me a great deal it's of satisfaction. So, it, this is what makes me laugh so much. I think I'm the one that craps on games the most. <laughs> but maybe it's I do it in such a way. Well, it's a tone it, thing. Just, that makes it sound. It's a tone thing. No, People respond to tone more than anything else as a general rule in my experience. At any rate. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, and then we're going to talk about some more games we played last week. And then, following that, just to mix it up, we're going to talk about some games that we played last week in addition. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and then we're going to talk about our feature game, which, as per our commissioner's prerogative, shall be Golem by Flaminian Bersini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani. So, with that in mind, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, let's go right to the to the the hotness guards of atlantis 2 so hot so hot hot like a curry published by wolf designer this is a re-implementation or version 2 of guards of atlantis and it is a moba style game the players play heroes godlike heroes <laughs> thugs you know compared to the minions that you overpower thugs overpowered thugs compared to the minions that get pushed around and it's very simple mechanism which makes the game flow and a lot of games use this where everyone picks a card secretly and then they flip up this makes the game 
move. You do that action, they all have initiative order, and then there is, you get to do that four times, and then there's a minion wave, a minion phase, where if one side is doing better than the other, then they kill more minions, and if all the minions die on a certain side, then they push towards the enemy base. And if you get to the enemy base, you win. If you get so many kills on the enemies, you win. Everything about this game, there's so many heroes in this new edition. Loved every bit. What do you think, Mark? I've been waiting for this for a very long time. I, very early on in my commenting career, uh, reviewed Guards of Atlantis. And all of the strengths of the original Guards of Atlantis are here. This is accessible and yet incredibly deterministic. The skill ceiling is very, very high in Guards of Atlantis 2, as it was in Guards of Atlantis 1. And it really captures a lot of the elements of MOBA-style gameplay. Now, we talk, we've talked a lot about MOBA-style implementations, and invariably there are some elements that get left behind. For example, there's no jungling in Guards of Atlantis, not per se, and the minions are abstracted in a way that some people find unsatisfying. But, but at any rate, it captures a lot of the, MOBA, the core MOBA elements that I remember from briefly dabbling in the genre, and people who play more MOBA games, like you, for example, definitely find a lot of that there, too. And the key advantages to Guards of Atlantis 2 above Guards of Atlantis 1, aside from the fact that the components are better, aside from the fact that there are more heroes, is that heroes get are more interesting out of the box right away. Plus, the element of hero death has been streamlined to a way that it is more advantage to the killing team and less disadvantageous to the victim team. So no one is ever out of the action for very long, and it increases the tension because you know that your team might be one hero death away from completely losing the game, as was the case in our game. It was very tense. One side went to a very early lead, but as a consequence of clever play and good positioning, the losing team then was able to catch up the distance and ultimately win due to a couple of salient misplays. Now, the elements of what makes games satisfying is is varied to many people, but one of the things that I'd really like to emphasize, especially in the context of Guards of Atlantis 2, is that misplays make game states interesting. Perfect play is often boring. And one of the great things about the skill ceiling being so high in Guards of Atlantis 2 is that you're not going to get to the point where you're not making any more quote-unquote mistakes. As I say, I've been looking forward to this release for years. We've tried a print-and-play early release version. We tried early release versions on Tabletopia, such as our enthusiasm for the game that we were willing to go into Tabletopia. And I am not remotely disappointed by the ultimate experience. It is a divisive game, to be sure, because as it is a no-luck, very confrontational, tense game of calculation and positioning. And so it is not necessarily for everybody. Yeah, you definitely have to sort of uh, prime people that you introduce this game to. They have to know that their characters are going to die a lot. They have to know that, that it's not a big deal. Sometimes you have to even make that sacrifice on purpose. There is going to be a lot of times where you're going to tell that person, no, you don't get to do that cool thing you wanted to do because you can only play that if that person played that type of card or because they played a card that just happened to counter what you did or they happened to have a better initiative and now they're out of range. You just have to know that it is, like you said, it's a high skill game. You have to be able to anticipate what your opponent's going to do. And as long as they're semi-primed for all of these things happening, I think they'll have a much better experience. Absolutely. So all of that having been said, with all those caveats in play, this is absolutely the style of game that I adore in terms of the the sheer variety of interesting plays and interesting game states and calculations and trade-offs that you can engage in. I'd be hard-pressed to see this not being my favorite game of the year. Now, 
to a certain extent, it's got a leg up because I was already a huge fan of the original Guards of Atlantis. But as I say, I've been waiting for this for a very, very long time, and it does not disappoint. The amount of variety and gameplay that is contained in this box is truly amazing. Now, that having been said, I, I got the all-in version, so all-in all gameplay. It is now considerably more expensive than it used to be. Such is the way of things. Life moves on. Entropy always wins. It's kind of our house motto. And there's just more content and production costs are increased. But I do not regret the purchase even remotely. And it is the case that with luck, you'll be able to get expansion modules with the additional heroes. And you might be able to try just the base game going forward. It's not available retail yet. But Guards of Atlantis 2 is an absolute delight. And I'm so glad that I finally have it in physical form. That's Guards of Atlantis 2 by Archim Nichapurov and Wolf Designer. I get to play Thor. Thor is a Reiner Knizia game. It is. It has been published under many different versions and many different titles and many different ostensible themes. One of the more widespread North American versions was published in a themeless abstract version called Loco. It is an incredible, simple, somewhat stock game. Is that why they went with Thor? They did Loki and now they're going to do Thor? Is that... Lo Loco. Oh, Loco, sorry. Loco. Okay. Proceed. Yeah. Now, I will note that the Thor version, in addition to having it pasted on Norse mythology theme, commits the cardinal sin of not including Tyr, so I might have to do something to fix that. It is an incredibly simple game. There are suits of cards from zero to five, no duplicates, and what you do is you play a card, and then you take a stock in a suit. You don't have to take a stock in the same suit that you just played to or what have you, and you know that all the cards are in play. It's just a question of timing. Is the last card under Thor going to be a zero, or is it going to be a five? Who has that card? What are they inclined to do with it? Do they have better things to do with their valuable card play to tank Thor or make Thor really, really valuable? You can try to make inferences based on this, looking at other stocks that people have taken over the course of the round, who's heavily into what. And like many Knizia card games, it's not really about the luck of the draw, but just knowing that you have the option of exerting that control by virtue of having the card in play, because it's always going to be in play every time. It's just, is someone going to take the time to actually play the card? Thor, the, this version ostensibly goes up to six, and I tried it with six, and I was somewhat nervous, because this system, which I will continue to call Thor, but has gone by any number of, of titles... It can get pretty chaotic, especially with respect to turn order and player counts, because the game ends immediately once a given suit has its sixth card played out. And so that five that you were waiting for to play on top of the zero to make your holdings really worthwhile, well, it's conceivable that three players in a row are going to play to the same suit and you're just done. It tends not to shake out that way, but it can. So I was somewhat nervous playing it with six. It worked great. Now, you're supposed to play multiple rounds to sort of even out the arbitrariness of the turn order, as I say. And we only played a handful of rounds, but it was still a very, very satisfying experience. Now, the Thor also has weird action cards, which I don't tend to recommend. Knizia sometimes does this. He has a very simple game, and then sometimes he designs action cards on top of it. And or the developer pushes on them, or sometimes a combination of both. I don't like the action cards in Battleline. I don't like the action cards in... Tower of Babel, I don't like the action cards in Thor. But it's an option. If you want to do that, that's fine. And the other advantage of the Thor version is that it comes in this adorable, tiny little narrow box. And so I highly recommend that version for no other reason. So yet another marvelously simple, but wonderfully tense and interesting card game by Reiner Knizia, Thor. I keep talking about Reich Buster's Project Vril. I'll talk about it again very briefly because in our 
one of our missions. We went down into the depths of pain and suffering through a portal, and we achieved the, we achieved the objective, but unfortunately, we didn't actually escape. Mm. So in this latest mission, we decided to all pick new characters. And what that did, it really brought to the forefront how they made all of these characters different, not only with the skills that they get, but the way their decks work. It's like little mini combos. Like now Huey's deck, he wants more cards in his discard because his attacks trigger off how many cards are in a discard. And anyway, all sorts of stuff like that, different things. I have silenced weapons, so I'm in for shooting, not doing a lot of damage, but staying silent, going off on my own. I just like how they've made everything so different. Uh, Louis's got a flamethrower. He makes so much noise, it's painful. He probably enjoys probably, that, doesn't probably he? Probably very painful for uh, for for the poor L- victims. Louis's a guy who likes to go loud. It definitely goes loud. We're not sure if it's the weapon that makes the noise or it's the screaming after he shoots the weapon. We're not mm. 100% sure. Or his laughing. Or his laughing. Slapping could do it as well. So that's Breakbusters. It's this uh, alternate universe occult World War II where it's sort of the heroes from all the allies sort of pick their dirty dozen and send a certain number of them, you know, on these missions. Super fun. We are loving it. This is by Games Workshop fame Jake Thornton and put out by Mythic Games. Got to play just one again. We've been playing lots of party games since I got back to Kingston. There have just been more opportunities for large groups of people to get together. And I think I played just one about four times over the course of the past seven days. And I really missed it. It is a delightful word game. We've talked about it a lot. It's a co-op word game, which is great, which means that it is maximally approachable. You have to try to think of obscure clues because if you give the same clue that somebody else gives, it's, it's wiped out, hence the just one. And so sometimes you psych yourself out, and at the end of the day, you only have obscure clues, none of the obvious ones. It's a lovely little game, and tends to have a delightful moment of humor at the very end of it, because then you check to see what your score means, and then the rulebook negs you aggressively. So, Just One, by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sauter, by Repo Production. Marvelous word game, marvelous party game. Yeah, I have that on my list too. I didn't pl- get to play with you, but it was one of these things where I just popped into the store for a very brief moment. They were playing. That's what makes it such an assess- accessible game. You like, I just was standing there, grabbed one of the placards, you know, got right into the next round, played, you know, a few rounds of it, put it down, you know, 10 minutes, and I'm out the door. What a great game. Speaking of party games, had the family over and we got to play Wits and Wagers because it's super fantastic uh, party game and or family game. It's a trivia game where all the answers are based on numbers and then everyone writes it on their dry erase card. You put it on this casino mat and then people bid on whatever answers they think are correct. So you don't even need to know the right answers. You just need to know who does have the right answers. This is by North Star Games, Wits and Wagers. Got to play For Sale, which by itself is another marvelously quick marvelously successful minimalist card game. However, we played with the expansion recently released called For Sale Advisors. This was also designed by Stefan Dora, who did the base game. And I have to say, pound for pound, this is probably the single worst expansion I've ever played. I approached it with some degree of trepidation, but some nonetheless somewhat hopeful, because again, it was by the same designer. It increases the rounds from two to three, which is not ideal. And instead of buying properties, which you then sell... Now you buy advisors, and you use the advisors to buy properties, and then you sell the properties. And some of the advisors have special powers that trigger during the next phase. Some of them have them 
have powers that trigger during the phase after that. Some of them give you endgame effects. And uh, honestly, it just didn't add anything to the experience. Especially since now the middle phase, the second phase of, of buying properties with the advisors, doesn't have the interesting element of the auction system of either the first or third phases, which is to say the first and second phases of the original game. It is just a once-around clockwise play, kind of sort of like a trick-taking game-ish, where the highest number gets the highest property and, and uh, so on down the line. It, it was just very disappointing, all told. The powers were not interesting. They included a minor element of arbitrary take that. For example, one of the advisors was, when you gain this advisor, the player to your right pays you $1,000. And then there are advisors that say, if you play this advisor and it's the lowest advisor when gaining properties, don't get the lowest property, get the second lowest property. In other words, you may think this is a low number, but really it's going to, it's going to screw over the person who played the number higher than you. Very unsatisfying, very disappointing, and ultimately does nothing more than just remind me of what a beautiful design for sale is. It is, bar, bar none, the best short auction game that I've ever played. And it's it got charming, delightful art in the real estate version. I haven't played the new car version. One of the things that's great about the original printings of For Sale is that in almost every property, there is an animal that kind of sort of comes with. If you buy the the island, the sea monster comes with. If you buy the cardboard box, well then... The cat in the alley comes with. It's great. You can either buy it based on the property or based on the animal. It's up to you. Car version, eh, just generic looking cars. I, I didn't find the art nearly as, as successful. So suffice to say, if you want for sale, I highly recommend the non-expanded original printings with the property versions, not the newer versions, which do not seem to have nearly the same level of charm, simplicity, or direct quality. It's, we've seen this so many times before. It's odd that the designer doesn't sort of conceive the concept of why their game was successful and then puts out a expansion that that aims to like destroy everything that makes their game I don't know, man. In this case, I cannot assume that this was a project conceived of and directed by and given impetus by Stefan Dora. I think this is more the publisher being like, can you expand for sale? And I can easily imagine Stefan Dora giving responses to everything from, I guess I could, to, are you sure? Maybe that's me just giving Sephandora too much credit. I don't know. But I'd be very, very surprised if this was a passion project where Sephandora was like, I have finally improved my game. It used to be simple and borderline perfect. Now it is slightly more cumbersome. <laughs> this was supposed to be in it from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. It just this wouldn't the, let me. This uh, is the original vision. <laughs> so that is For Sale, the Advisor's Expansion by Sephandora and Eagle Griffin Games. I got to play Guild of the Merchant Explorers. How's that for a name? Input three words here. <laughs> and this is designed by Matthew Dustin, Brett J. Gilbert, published by AEG Games. And it's a flip and put a cube. Because there's like three rounds where you sort of like clear the map, this is more likely why it's not a roll and write. So you're flipping a card and you're putting cubes on this hexed map. And then you're trying to sort of Blue Lagoon style forge these bases out a little further. Because at the end of that round, after the six cards have come up, uh, you're going to wipe all your cubes. And then next round, you get to start from your capital and or where you have your little villages that you've created in the first round. 
the interesting things that happen is that there are sort of round cards that go into the deck. So in the first round, the round one card will come up. When it comes up, everyone gets two special abilities. Pick one. They get to do it immediately. And then in round two, that round one card might come up, will come up again because all the cards come up and a round two card will come up. Same thing. Two cards. Put them to the side and they're going to keep triggering every round up to the fourth round. Whereas the fourth round, you don't get a new ability. It's just a card that says pick one, two, or three, and you get to do that ability again. So you're going to do one, two, and three, and one of your choice. You're doing all sorts of things. You're finding ruins. You're going out to towers. You're doing missions that are on the side of the board. You know, it has there are all sorts of different things you can do. There's different maps that you can play on. Looking forward to playing more Guild of the Merchant Explorers. Everyone enjoyed it that played. We streamed it, so if you want to check it out, you can see it on our YouTube live channel. Got to play Imperial Spells in Steam. This is a game we reviewed not too long ago by Trey Chambers and Level 99 Games. I was in the mood for a simple game, but with lots of stuff. And Imperial Spells in Steam is relatively straightforward in terms of rules. But oh my goodness, there is a lot of stuff to be had. Lots of additional powers, lots of additional... Abilities you can trigger, refreshing the powers, using them again, comboing off of other powers, developing weird new spell abilities, all the while doing kind of sort of almost but not really a pick up and deliver game. Now, one of the reasons in particular why I wanted to play Imperial Spells and Steam was because we recently got in our Kickstarter delivery of Little Plastic Trains by the Little Plastic Train Company. And I gave all of the players, I played with an almost full component of five players, everyone had the choice of playing either with the trains included Imperial Spells and Steam, which are absolutely charming, or the plastic trains provided by the Little Plastic Train Company. And to a person, they all wanted to play with the awesome, multicolored, historically inflected Little Plastic Trains and the, the Little Metal Tin. And helpfully enough, they each have their own little score marker, which we were able to use in lieu of the token that, uh, used to advance on this kind of sort of rondelle that isn't pointed back to straight line. So that was an excellent little tip. And despite my general lack of enthusiasm for trains, I real, I know I'm very sorry, the additional visual appeal of the little plastic trains were absolutely wonderful. And so Imperial Spells and Steam gets to be this sprawling, special powers-laden thing, with nonetheless a very simple core action selection mechanism and very interesting trade-offs therein. So, I really feel now, having played it in this version, I've played the definitive version of Imperial Spells and Steam, and uh, I don't think I would want to go back. I would even be willing to commit the cardinal sin of mixing player colors and play the black color faction or the gold color faction with, say, the yellow trains. Because why would I ever want to go back from the trains that we have available? That was Imperial Spells and Steam. Mark, we talked about Yak a while back. And this is a game designed no. by Michael Liu and published by Pretzel Games here in Canada, over in Montreal. And this is a high toy factor game. You get these yaks and you put on their horns and everyone has their, I don't want to say their own cart, but there's one per player and these giant blocks that get loaded onto the carts and food and they rotate around this mountain and sometimes they get lost, Mark, because it's very foggy up in the mountains. And therefore, you've been contracted out by the chieftain to build these giant pyramids so the merchants won't get lost in the mountains anymore. So the yaks are going around with these blocks and you're trying to build these pyramids and you're going to get scored at the end of the game based on how many groups of colors and how many overall groups you have and there's some goal cards because if you get the colors and the certain patterns you get even more points it's a very family style game it's you know uh you know a cube pusher you know you 
buy the cubes, get the cubes, you get more food, you buy more cubes. They roll. It's, it's one of these things where you have to just sort of look ahead. And sometimes it's pointless to look ahead because the fog will hit and all the carts will turn around and go the other way. <laughs> Cause some carts can't have, you know, there's three foods that you're going to be trading for blocks, which is bread, meat, and milk. And each cart has a thing that they can't trade. Like this one can't have milk. This one can't have meat. This one can't have bread. So you're looking ahead saying, okay, well, the no, the no meat cart's coming to me next. I'll trade for a bunch of milk. Well, you have the vegetarian cart, the gluten-free cart. Exactly. And the lactose intolerant cart. Just so. And then so you're, you're all ready for to accept the meat cart. And then someone draws a fog block and then they all turn around. And then suddenly it's not the milk cart you're going to get. It's the meat cart. And you've got all this meat and now you're, you, you can't, he doesn't want the meat, Mark. You say, but the meat is so good. And he goes, <laughs> no, I don't want it. So anyway, that is Yak. Everyone enjoyed it. Not very much decision. Very, definitely a family oriented game, but still lots of fun. Same thing. It is on our YouTube live channel. Last party game I'll be talking about this week is Trial by Trolley. This is a game that I've been wanted to try for several years on a semi-professional basis, being that I used to be a professor of moral philosophy. This is party card game by the same people who do Cyanide and Happiness, the popular webcomic, and a follow-up to their card game Joking Hazard. Trial by Trolley is a kind of a riff on the trolley problem. I will, with great difficulty, Walker, suppress the substantive differences between the actual trolley problem setup and Trial by Trolley. Long story short... There's going to be a judge and two teams, and what you do is you start playing cards to either side of the track to try to convince the judge that they want to murder the opponent's side of the track. So there are innocent cards, people that presumably the judge would rather not run over. There are guilty cards, which presumably are meant to incentivize the judge to pick that. And then there are modifier cards. The modifier cards are some of the most interesting ones, like is about to go develop a cure for cancer, or is just about to go murder someone you knew in high school. And so the combination of those and the modifiers are some of the more entertaining bits and certainly caused a few chuckles. The problem about this as a, as a party game, though, is that there are a large number of party games that operate on the appeal to a judge metric. And quite frankly, there are other ones that I would rather play. For example, Billionaire Banshee, which is a game about dating, leads to more interesting combinations with the card play and more revealing discussions about why people choose to do one as opposed to the other. And quite frankly, I just find the art more appealing anyhow. And there are also party games that similarly rest on leveraging people's judgments, but there isn't this one judge. For example, Attribute by Marcel-André Castasola-Merkel, which the elevator pitch I would give to you is like apples to apples, but an actual game. And so... Ultimately, the amusement value, although present, isn't really enough to make me want to go back. I certainly wouldn't ever want to play the game such that in Trial by Trolley I would ever see a card twice. Now, there are an awful lot of cards in the box, but it leads me ill-inclined to go back for more, especially since some of the cards don't even lead to particularly interesting or humorous situations. They pretty much just end the round. For example, we encountered an innocent card, which was everyone under the age of 15. Everyone. Yes, put out your best Leon the Professional gift here, everyone. What can you play to modify that such that it's not going to carry the round? People are not going to willing to murder that many people. Like, what? Oh, on that side of the track, there's also George Lucas, who's about to come up with Jar Jar Binks. Haha, no, it's not going to work. So it's just over. Now, look, I'm not saying that this is a bad party game because it's not competitively balanced. No, what I'm saying is, is that there's some cards that don't lead to interesting decisions or interesting discussions or particularly funny moments. 
And so as a consequence, I, I feel that it's an uneven experience when there are other ones that I find more reliably produce the kind of social in instinct experiences that it was meant to provoke. By the way, none of the uh, comments and discussions that we had pursuant to people's decisions in a game of trial by trolley were what I would call remotely ethically interesting. Which is more or less what I expected. I was not expected, uh, expecting any, of uh, this game to produce any scintillating commentary about why you value one group of people over another. The game kind of sort of promises that it will, but it doesn't. And in that sense, I wasn't necessarily disappointed because again, I didn't see, uh, I, I more or less saw that coming. So I was glad to finally try Trial by Trolley, but I don't think I'll be playing it again. That's by Scott Hauser and Skybound Games, published in 2020. Lastly, for me, another party game, The Chameleon. I didn't actually play it, but I did teach it, and it's very easy to teach. If you want to bring someone into a, a hidden role type genre game, uh, you can't go wrong with The Chameleon, and you have to, have to specify The Chameleon. You type in Chameleon, you're going to get 10 games. This one is called The Chameleon. And it's very much uh, like uh, Spyfall or... Uh, what is it called? Scapegoat, where you're going to roll some dice and it's going to generate a word for the people that are not the chameleon because there is one chameleon. And then in turn order, everyone is going to say a word associated with the word for the round. And when it comes to the chameleon turn, they're going to have to try to think one up and say it out loud. And then once everyone said one word, then you sort of have to suss out who the chameleon is. So it's going to lead to the same problems as Spyfall if, if you know, the spy is the very first person to go. That is an issue, but you know, you play enough rounds, it's, it goes quick enough that it's not really a problem. This is designed by Riki Taha and put out by Big Potato Games, not the small potato. They only do big potatoes, big potato games. I would like to announce with great pleasure that we are able to resurrect a long forgotten segment here on So Very Wrong About Games, namely the Ask an eight-year-old, where an eight-year-old will review the components and artwork in a given game. Now, sadly, I have to announce that that specific version of the segment will have to be retired, because as I said, entropy always wins. Uh, now we are able to offer the slightly related segment, Ask an 11-year-old. I was able to play Cockroach Poker with the aforementioned 11-year-old. Cockroach Poker is amazing. We've talked about it enough. And I was able to say, hey, 11-year-old, what is your evaluation of this artwork? And he said, very stinky. So there you have it. Now, finally for me, in terms of games played last week, I got to play Bloodbound, and I realized, going over our episode notes, I have never had a chance to discuss Bloodbound on this podcast, which seems like a great oversight. Now, granted, a lot of the, this podcast has happened during COVID, and getting six people together to play a game of Bloodbound is not necessarily easy. Bloodbound is a kind of sort of social deduction game, whereby the game is divided up into two teams. You can play with odd numbers, but it is not ideal. But you don't know who your teammates are. In fact, you start the game with precious little information. It's not the kind of game where the bad guys know what's going on and the good guys don't. Nobody knows much of anything at the start of a game of Bloodbound. But on your turn, you have a marvelously simple and direct choice. There's this lovely cardboard knife, and you either hand it to someone handle first, in which case it is their turn. Or you stab them with it, in which case they have to take a wound. Or a really bad paper cut. The wound system in Bloodbound is really what makes it sing, because as they take a wound, they are revealing information about who they are and or what team they're on. And so gradually you have this ability to s target people's hidden information. More and more information enters the system, and you get a better idea about who's on your side, who you need to go after, who you need to protect. And on top of this is a lovely sprinkling of special abilities and the possibility for deception. I'm a big fan of Bloodbound. It is not nearly as tense and confrontational and logic-driven 
as even, say, Secret Hitler, and certainly not as much as the Resistance. And as such, it is approachable for a large number of people who do not normally enjoy social deduction games. But at the same time, you do get the satisfaction of stabbing your friends repeatedly for no particular reason. It's okay. The game ends once someone's killed anyway. And you probably lost, because you probably shouldn't have killed that person. It's tough to win a game of Bloodbound. Usually someone makes a mistake, but that's all right. The other great thing about Bloodbound is that in the original printing, the artwork on the character cards is best described as extra. Very, very extra. The suspicion that we have here is that it was a case of the designer approaching their friends. They got a whole bunch of stuff from either the bargain bin or perhaps from their LARP group. No objection to LARPing whatsoever. And then they posed with a whole bunch of weird props. But they really went for it. It's very over the top. No other game looks quite like Bloodbound, I can tell you that much, in the first printing. And we have a little house rule developed here at Silver Robot Games, invented uh, in conjunction with Dr. Contra, whereby at the end of the game you reveal all your character cards, and then you play a game where you set people up in relationships. And it is a very enjoyable part of the game, I assure you. The second printing of the game had much, much more generic vampire and werewolf art, not nearly as highly recommended. So if you're looking for a light social deduction game that nonetheless has an evolving picture of information from which to make deductions, that has a certain degree of mystery and intrigue, but at the same time is not very intimidating, I highly recommend Bloodbound. It is a remarkable little artifact, especially if you find the first printing artwork. Designed by Cali Krenzer and published in both printings by Fantasy Flight Games. And those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. 
Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, we now know that all good games must have a roll and write version now. And, <laughs> and many bad games too. And many bad games. And our, our good doctors decide to throw his hat into the ring. There will now be Tigris and Euphrates, the roll and write game. Are you serious? No, not at all. Okay. I'm totally faking. <laughs> uh, hopefully I caught some other people. But there are two new versions of a roll and write. There's going to be an Orleans draw and write. See, it's draw because you're drawing tokens from bag. See what they did there? That's so it's draw and draw? Draw and draw. Okay. So it's draw and draw. It's called Joan of Arc, Orleans Draw and Write. And the next one up is Yokohama Roll and Write. So there you go. Great, great games. They all need a Roll and Write version. Those are two of your favorite Euros. So. That's true. So I'm looking forward to it. We'll get a chance to play the Yokohama one very soon. Should be here. And uh, who knows when the Orle- the Joan of Arc one will be out. It, it will, it's uh, DLP. So it's going to be over in Europe, and we'll see it in about 10 years. Most likely. And then, lastly for me, a few Kickstarters that caught my eye that you might want to check out. It is Metropolis, but now going under the name Skyrise. This is going to be put out by Roxley Games. Very super high toy factor. Check it out. Next up is Septima. This is like where you're, you're grouping a coven of witches, and you're trying to be head witch. And this is coming out by Mind Clash Games. And lastly, if you like Vital Asserta, but you find it a little heavy, they sort of, he's teamed up with another developer or another designer, and they're putting out a game called Bot Factory. Finally, sad news, the passing of a legend, Maureen Hyron, the designer of many, many games that have sold millions and millions of copies starting her career with Continuo and she has been inducted into the Hall of Fame of game design she has sadly passed away and I have to say of all the game designer as I've ever seen not had quite the fashion sense that she had invariably in interviews and presentations she would have some sort of incredibly reflective very colorful cap and you have to respect that apparently everyone who met her had very good things to say about Maureen Hyron never had the chance to meet her but she has passed away, and sincerest condolences to his to her family, and her legacy, of course, will continue to live on. And that is the news, and why it sometimes matters. Now, on to the main game of the week, which is Gollum. Gollum was designed by Flaminia Bersini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani, published by Cranio Creations last year. It is very difficult to talk about the pedigree of any of these Italian designers. I jokingly refer to collectively uh, this group of Italian uh, designers as the Italian masters. There are others, but this, they tend to collaborate. They collaborate more often than hip-hop artists. And there is a lot of intersection amongst these different groups. So this particular group of three designers collaborated in 2016's Lorenzo El Magnifico, which is Italian for Larry the Pretty Good. And it is also the case that Virginio Gili and Simone Luciani collaborated in 2015 with Grand Austria Hotel. Flaminia Bersini... Flaminia Bersini and Virginio Gili collaborated in 2018 with Coimbra. And on top of that, there's a there's a Italian design collective called Akitoka, which con- which consists of Flamini Bersini, Virginia Gili, and 
Stefano Luperto, and Antonio Tinto, who collaborated to design Igizia and Alma Mater. So suffice to say, there's a lot of work by these individuals working in conjunction and in isolation. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Golem? All right, so in Golem, you're attempting to utilize your golems to your advantage, and when they become a burden or not useful, don't worry, you can just murder them and get a Benny. Remember, gold coins aren't gold. Adding, <laughs> adding a golem puts you up the, go- the golem track, but adding a book does not put you up the book track. Does completing an artifact put you up the artifact track? There's no artifact track, stupid. <laughs> adding a book gets you bennies. Building a golem gets you stuff. What does adding gold to an artifact do? Depends. Did you complete it? Then nothing, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Gollum. Can can we start with a brief discussion of the theme? We sure can. So it was interesting because when the cover, the first mock-up of the cover was released by Cranio Creations, uh, they actually got the Hebrew writing backwards. Hebrew is read from right to left, and... In the story of golems, sometimes the word emet uh, is written on their their, their forehead for truth, uh, but the original version of the artwork had it backwards, so it was just gibberish. Uh, this was pointed out and mocked brutally by a number of people on Board Game Geek and elsewhere, and to their credit, they did indeed hire a cultural advisor with a uh, local Italian Jewish organization, and that's all for the good. However, in the vast world of Jewish folklore. There are lots of different versions of the golem story. Golems being animated, uh, well, automatons made out of clay. There's some instance, there's some indication to suggest that they actually inspired the story Universal Robots, which is where we get the term robot for automaton. But they decided to specifically riff on the 16th century golem of Prague story, which is a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not going to, again, I'm not ready to go to the ramparts on this one, because the 16th century Golem of Prague was not constructed to go do scut work. The Golem of Prague was constructed to defend against a pogrom, which is to say a violent suppression of the minority population of Prague. So it seems strange that you want to pick this one and then blanch out the anti-Semitic roots of the story and the, the background of oppression of the Jewish people when you could have picked any circumstance you wanted. So why set it in the Golem of Prague story when all you're doing with your golems is having them go out and bring you gold and acquire more clay and convert clay into victory points or take books out from the library? I'd really like to see how that works, by the way. It's a, it's an odd circumstance. It actually reminds me a little bit of Fister in Mombasa. It's like, yeah, there's some terrible, terrible stuff at the root of the story. Let's just pretend that doesn't exist and I'm presenting an alternate version of it. It's, it's an odd choice. And that's, at the end of the day, that's where I'm coming down with it. It seems like an odd choice. And there's a bunch of other window dressing. I did spend quite a bit of time trying to figure out, like, if there was a tie-in, like the, the menorahs. Like, like, does that have something directly to do? I understand that. It's a very, very big part of the Jewish faith. I understand yep. that. But I'm wondering if it had a tie-in with golems or tied in with anything that was going on there. there certainly not Certainly not in the game and not to my knowledge. Exactly. And same thing with the marbles that they use for the for the main action selection. I thought maybe there was something there as well. Like, why, why did they – you know, it's a fairly uh, – expensive or robust or you know over the top system i was thinking that maybe there was a reason why they're using i couldn't find anything for that either well there's no thematic reason but i i'm less inclined to give them flack for that because yeah i'm not saying it's a big deal but i was was just hoping that there was something that tied it all together oh sure if there had been greater thematic tissue to tie it all together though that would have really elevated it from your standard euro fare because let me let me just get get this out of the way 
you can tell based on the names on the box and my ex- my explanation of the previous work whether or not this is a game you're going to like. I really think that based on your reaction to Lorenzo El Magnifico, Grand Austria Hotel, Coimbra, stuff like that, whether this is the kind of game you're going to enjoy. Because I really like Simone Luciani, and I generally really like the work of Akitoka. But Grand Austria Hotel and Coimbra eh, don't really do it for me. They're they're very squarely in the acceptable, workmanlike, unobjectionable, medium-heavy Euros that I might be willing to play a couple times but then don't really want to go back to. It's definitely not like Luciani's best work, which is, I think, his collaborations with Daniela Tashini, which is unfortunate because Tashini is still kind of sort of on the outs. We'll see how he's doing. Apparently, he's he's engaged in a series of sensitivity training partially sponsored by Borden Dice. We'll see what happens. Kind of an evaluation period, as we've said in the past on this show. And I also really like the work of Akitoka, generally speaking. Uh, And then, of course, there's, in my impression, Simone Luciani's masterwork, which is Barrage, which he did with Tommaso Battista. But all the work he's done with Gili and Brasini has been kind of okay. None of it has been particularly thematically compelling. But again, we're talking about efficiency euros. They almost never are. So the marble aspect, where you're taking these marble actions, that part I thought was actually kind of cool, because it's an interesting physical gimmick. At the top of every round, you dump a whole bunch of marbles into this cardboard sorting mechanism, and it will distribute them amongst the different actions, and the actions will get more powerful based on the number of marbles that are in that column, and the color of marble will have some other follow-on effects later. So the fact that it's mechanically clever and kind of novel phys- uh, as a physical gimmick makes me completely willing to forgive that. Part. Yeah, but uh, well, the one thing is I'm, I was very hesitant about it because it's not really a sorting thing. There's no levers or brakes in those in but it works out okay it does surprisingly but i was very worried about it because they, they sure. made it just like a, a dice tower and a dice tower works because you're throwing down things with sides and squares and they'll turn and they'll do stuff this is marbles and they tend to just slide straight down so if you're not sort of equally putting them in they might all fall to one side or whatever and because there's nothing that makes them shoot left or right so you just you sort of have to make sure you're doing a nice even distribution they do sort of bang against each other and sort of knock around each other that way but i was hesitant conceptually i share your hesitation but the way things shook out and by this i actually quite quite mean literally it worked out all right now i don't know how much the game system wants the actions to be randomized in the way that the mechanism does but in terms of giving you a random distribution, I thought it worked out okay. Yeah, and the marbles do lots, right? So it's, what ones do you choose, right? There's advisors that are in play at the top of the board, and they're going to let you do something at the end of the round. If you pick the right marbles, you're going to be able to move certain students, depending on the color, depending on how many marbles are in the certain action, because they go down these troughs that all line up with all the different actions you can do. And depending on how many marbles are there, the, the action is going to be more powerful. So lots of different reasons to choose different actions. Ultimately, the, the one the one problem I had with the marble system was that it was conjoined with a series of actions that were pretty unexciting, because ultimately the number of marbles marbles usually just amounts to a discount of whatever you're going to do. You know, there's three marble in the gold track. You get three gold when you do that. There's three marbles in the knowledge action. You get three marble uh, three knowledge when you do that. There's two marbles in the 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 golem action. Well, you get two clay when you do that. Uh, so. It's the kind of game Golem is that rewards specialization. You're going to get a lot more points, both at the end game and during the game, if you're able to really max out on your artifacts or max out on your books or what have you. You get these compounding benefits that just keep kicking you more and more. And as a consequence, it's it's a standard sort of 
undifferentiated sameness that you often feel in games like this. Now, I, I commented on this most pointedly in the context of Coimbra. I remember when reviewing Coimbra, it's like, everything I do just feels like I'm just getting a couple marginal points here and there. Nothing feels even remotely different. Things are slightly better in Golem, sometimes even to its detriment. More on that later. They do feel a little bit different, but at the end of the day, if you want to ignore the titular Golems, you kind of can. You can, but I sort of like that. About it. I put that in sort of as you can play differently every time. Because like you said, there's three main parts sure. on your player board. You've got your library or your books, the artifacts that you can build or making your golems cooler. And there is no possible way that you can do all of them. So you can, like you said, it's good to concentrate on one and you can do make that a different one every game. So it sort of mixes it up every time. I mean, I guess it's, it's slightly mechanically different whether you're going to be maxing out on artifacts or maxing out on books. But ultimately, I felt that that was to the game's detriment, both conceptually and mechanically, because in Golem, the interesting part, and the part that's actually kind of sort of thematic, are the eponymous Golems. The way that it works is you have these students that are marching along a track very slowly, and Golems, which you're obliged to move, usually very, very quickly, probably far more quickly than you'd like. And the idea is, is the farther they get away from your students, the more difficult they are to control. Again, central to a lot of the golem mythology is that the golems will eventually become unruly and difficult to control. And so that part was neat. Again, the problem was the golem actions themselves are not particularly interesting. And as I said before, sometimes the way to activate the golems, the core, the core way to have golems carry out actions might be underrepresented in the marble trough, which didn't seem like a particularly satisfying way. So you've got this huge board, the actual board. And the part that's kind of novel and has a bit of tension and has a bit of thematic coherence is utterly ignorable. And sometimes it just so happens that you're going to be focusing on goal of actions, or sometimes you can just completely ignore it. Yeah, because you can easily compensate for the golems being further ahead. The tension is not there. It's either some knowledge that you'll most easily have, or there's abilities that you can get easily that make it super easy just to ignore there is a little bit of tension or or decision space because we said you can destroy the golems, but when you when you move the golems, you get this sort of pool of movement points and you split them between your golems. So if one golem gets too far ahead, you can just retire them. But now you have less golems, so those less golems are now going more spaces. So you can get into some trouble. Cough, and uh, <laughs> and I like that that part of the game. I thought was very interesting. I really wish this is the same complaint that I have about so many Euro games, and I apologize for repeating it so often. Golem could have been more focused. If there had been a greater focus and emphasis on managing this unruly workforce of yours, and again, you could have then rethemed it to almost anything, right? This could have been like a, a cynical take on labor relations like Free Time by Friedman Fries, right? Where you have this these managers and they're very difficult to move around because they don't want to do what you tell them to. And similarly, there are these workers who are off going, doing the things on which you depend, but they're difficult to control. And sometimes they might demand things like benefits. So then you retire them, right? You want a younger workforce. And they, anyway, it kind of works, but that's, that's the part of the game that again, I, I felt was more novel, more interesting. And it wasn't just another series of, well, I, I, I guess I'll upgrade this track, and that gives me more income and, and victory points at the end of the game. And Okay. Yeah, it felt a lot like Taverns of Tevenhall, right? You had this giant player board with, it was an advent calendar of all these things you could flip over and upgrade, right? Well, so that part was interesting, but in the end, they were so minor and, and trivial in some cases. It was just like a victory point multipliers, and anyway, it just seemed unnecessary. Exactly. And there is some interesting novel stuff here in Golem, but again... 
there's no compelling reason to interface with it if you don't go out to find it. It's one of those cases where the sl- I'm not, it's not quite a sandbox, but it's one of those areas where the additional paths to victory detract from the quality of the gameplay rather than enhance it. And it, it's a shame because it, it's, again, it's not totally novel, but it's somewhat novel. If they had made the marble distribution system give a little bit more texture rather than just arbitrarily giving you a couple extra clay or a couple discount here and there. And if you were forced just by virtue of the game being pared down and more focused to engage more substantially with this risky element of, can I keep this golem alive one more round? Will I be able to keep them under control? I think that would have been substantially preferable. Agreed. Let's go right all the way back to the beginning on points that I missed because setup for this game is no joke, right? You have these three roads where these students go down, they all have to be populated with different tokens. You've got several decks of cards. You've got your player board that you have to set up that has, you know, 15 to 30 different tokens on it. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're going to be uh, drafting a set of goal cards. You're going to be drafting a artifact board. Lots of things going on before you even get to play. And can we talk a little bit about the iconography? We can. I I feel like I'm being punked because not last week I talked about specifically how the Italian masters, as a general rule, have a consistency when there's an exclamation point. I specifically talked about Simone Luciani, how in his games, if there's an exclamation point, that means something very specific. It means get the thing now and it's going to be income for the rest of the game. And then I get to play Golem, where exclamation points mean different things based on different contexts. Parenthetically, none of them referring back to that original model. The iconography, it's not the worst in the world, but there's a lot of it. And it's not particularly consistent internally from any kind of logic that I could perceive. No, it's pretty rough. I have that symbology is sometimes very unclear. And I also have a point about the income as well, because income is everywhere. And it's very easily missed. You've got it on the on the main board. You got to see where your students are. You've got it all over your 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 uh, player board, but only if you unlock certain things. It shows the income symbols, but you have to be careful. It's like, oh, well, have I built that yet? No, I don't get that. I don't get that. Okay, this one I built. I get that one, but not this one. On, on top of that, there's a kind of kind of structural asymmetry to how the various bits of your board work, and it's not an interesting asymmetry in terms of different strategies to pursue or different skills that it might reward. It's just an asymmetry that you have to remember. The one that I, I find particularly obnoxious is every time you slot in a book, you're going to get a Benny, but if you've unlocked the slot, you'll get an additional Benny on top of that. Artifacts work the other way around. First, you have to unlock the slot for it to work at all, and then you can slot in additional things, which you don't get right away, but you will get later, except for the things that you do get right away. Ugh. It's not the most complicated thing in the world, but the fact that it's not represented differently in terms of symbology, and yet is very, very different from a structural perspective, and amounts to no interesting gameplay decisions, is frustrating. Agreed. In the end, of it, it sort of boils down to a resource pitch pusher as well right it's like clay in clay out coins back and forth knowledge back and forth get more knowledge spend more knowledge and it just seems you're working the components more than you're actually enjoying the game yeah it's not aggressively unpleasant it's solid i didn't i don't regret my time with it but again it's very much in the same category for me as grand austria hotel and coimbra mechanically functional there were a couple of potentially clever ideas that weren't quite exploited to the same extent that I want. In fact, it's even worse in Golem. I think Golem is slightly preferable to those games, if only because it's got a couple of interesting bits. 
but the game doesn't really emphasize or focus on those interesting bits. Yeah, I think that's when games become more frustrating, when you can see a potential there and the potential is lost, and that's where it gets more frustrating. Because it has that, we've already talked about the marble actions, and there's also a rabbi action. You get to do this in whatever order you like, and there was some tension there. It's like, well, uh, they've already taken their marble action, so I might as well take my rabbi action now, because they're not going to be able to affect that. Or there's a really good rabbi action there, I'm going to jump on that before someone else does. And that also uh, it uh, makes the turn order. So depending on where you took the rabbi action, is going to affect the turn order for next round. Which is usually a big thing, because you get first pick of those marble actions when it's first seeded. So I love all of that part. It's true. There are there are absolutely elements of excellence in Golem. It would be hard-pressed to assemble this much talent and this many people who've done other excellent games and not get that. And to a certain extent, you know, it doesn't really matter how much you or I ever uh, really say. Do you want the next game by this group of Italian designers? Golem is absolutely the next game by this group of Italian designers. But it is not their best work. And it is not their most focused work. And I agree with you that there's an added sense of frustration because there are seeds of greatness in Golem. And I think that a tighter game where it really was about the eponymous Golems would have been one that I really would want to go back to instead of a game that I don't really feel inclined to go back to. I think that's good. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are on a variety of social medias. We have a variety of different ways to get to us by the clickety-clack, and we will read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very, very much for spending your time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicking. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.